You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. Uh, welcome to uh, the Holy Week, as, as Christians uh, call it. And today marks Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of the Passion Week, the Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, it's really important, and uh, it's, it's an it's a important week in the kind of calendar of church life. And as we've been going through this series, this little mini-series called Risen, what we've been doing is actually exploring kind of those pivotal moments in the ministry and life of Jesus that lead us into this significant week that kind of lead us into Easter week, Holy Week. And Holy Week really does encapsulate for us both Jesus' purpose in his ministry and his identity and who he is. In essence, without this week of Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday, continuing all the way to Good Friday and then Resurrection Easter Sunday, without this week, we would have a hard time really understanding the magnitude of who he is. We wouldn't be able to see really why he came and how he fulfilled his mission. And so as we kind of approach uh, coming into this Easter week, today we begin where it begins in the triumphal entry. On this day of Palm Sunday where Jesus is making his entrance into Jerusalem. Now this weekend uh, in in the life of, of, uh, well, sports world uh, is an important week as well. It is opening weekend of baseball. Uh, And I know some of you are really happy about that. I think it's one of the best weekends in all sports. Now, I think the one thing we've learned so far from this weekend is the Nats are going to need a lot of help this year. Uh, They're pretty bad. Uh, But there's one particular aspect I want to focus on of the modern kind of game of baseball, and it's a very insignificant um, portion of it, but it's something I think is is pretty telling. And it's what we refer to as the player's walk-up songs, okay? Now, every player has a particular song as they enter in the game, whether they're a hitter going to the batter's box or their pitcher coming out of the bullpen. They have a song that plays in the stadium. And the intent behind this song is to kind of puff up the player and the crowd and also put on notice for the other team that this player is approaching. And sometimes these songs tell a little bit about the identity and the personality of the player as well. But they really do serve as a way of making their presence known. As the adrenaline is pumping, as they're entering the game, they want the opposing players and the crowd to know that they have their entrance. This is their attention grabber. Now, when I was in high school, I, I do remember like, wanting to put a lot of weight on this because there's an, another element when you're in high school. You really just want to intimidate the other team, right? You want to do whatever you can to intimidate them. And so the walk-up song serves as a way to really put fear in the opposing pitcher, right? And, and now some of us just have a more physical presence that we could put fear in, in people. Uh, I did not have that. Uh, so, uh, so the walk-up song is important. Um, my brother who's here with me today, actually, um, he, he had an intimidating presence, and he also chose a very intimidating walk-up song. He entered into Ric Flair's intro song. Now, if you don't know who that is, you're too young, go Google it, and you will find that it's probably the most cocky and intimidating way you could ever enter into a baseball game. And so I had to match that level of cockiness, that intimidation. And as you can see on this picture here, I was a very intimidating figure in high school. <laughs> 150 pounds soaking wet, right? I mean, that just, that just you know, the, the, the picture was so fearful of me. Um, so I decided to choose the song, Eye of the Tiger, right? To really make my presence known as I walk up to the plate. I should have just focused on being a better hitter. That would have probably been more helpful. But, but I tried my best to, to, to intimidate, to, to make my presence known. Now, sometimes walk-up songs can be more unexpected. 
Uh, I think of Gerardo Perra, who was a, a member of the Washington Nationals 2019 World Series team, who kind of an ode to one of his children, he came into the song Baby Shark, <laughs> which is not intimidating at all, right? But it actually became like the unofficial anthem of that World Series run where people were literally showing up at the stadium in shark costumes, um, which I think was just awesome. <laughs> uh, what a great series. What a great uh, season. Now, I say all this because Jesus, as he enters in Jerusalem here, he kind of has his own walk-up song. And in fact, the people are singing a particular song about him. And he's coming into Jerusalem in a very specific way. And in some ways, it's very unexpected. It's not what we would think. But in other ways, he is actually proclaiming exactly who he is. In some ways, we look at this and say, well, it's quite unimpressive. I mean, riding in on a donkey, that's not going to necessarily strike fear into the opposition. That's not going to necessarily intimidate to make your presence known. And yet, what Jesus is actually doing in the way in which he comes in on, King, uh, excuse me, on, on uh, Palm Sunday is he's actually proclaiming his kingship. You see, the way he rides in on this particular Sunday may not look like a warrior riding in, coming into a victorious battle. It may not look like someone on a war horse with, with an army behind him, but the very way as he rides in this donkey, he is actually putting every king in the world on notice of his presence and of his kingship. In our passage today, we're going to see this is the moment where Jesus comes to confront anyone who sits on a throne including us today, who might probably sit on the throne of our own lives. And this is really the main idea of this text. It's the main idea of every year when we celebrate Palm Sunday. It is simply this, that Jesus is our king. He comes in to proclaim that he is the king, that he is the Messiah. And it may be in an unprecedented manner, it may be in a way that people don't expect but his walk-up tune here, the way in which he approaches, is going to tell us simply this, that he is the king. He is the king that will do whatever it takes to take his proper place on his throne and have us as his people in his kingdom. Even if that means that he rides into battle on a donkey, humble. And so we're going to look at today in this triumphal entry, we're going to see two things really about it. Uh, they're going to teach us who Jesus is and who we are and, and perhaps how we can respond to him on Palm Sunday. Our outline's going to flow straight from the text. It's going to be pretty simple today. We're going to look at the king that we want in Matthew 21, the king that the crowd wanted in Matthew 21, and then we're going to look at precisely the king we need. The king we need. The king we want and the king we need. As, as uh, we just heard the passage read by Katie, we'll pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 21. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, so they're coming to Jerusalem, they came to uh, Bethage or Bethpage, and, and they come to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus then sends two disciples, and he says to them, go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And Jesus says this specifically took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
and the crowds that went before him and that followed him, the crowds that had seen his miracles, the crowds that had witnessed his teachings, they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, maybe perhaps to better understand what's actually happening in this passage, we need a little bit of context to Israel. That when you go back in the Old Testament, you see that the history of Israel is a little bit of an up and down story. But there's one point in Israel's history in the Old Testament where they're really the, the, truly the height and center of the world's power, particularly under the, the reign of King David and under the reign of King Solomon. And however, we notice that shortly after that, they're conquered, and then they experience exile. And then years and years and hundreds and hundreds of years later, we now find that there's a small minority living under the Roman Empire. And in this moment, they're longing for this Messiah that the Old Testament spoke of. This Messiah who would come and free them from the tyranny of the Romans and restore Israel to their former glory. They expected a leader, a political leader, who could come and wield great power on their behalf. One who could restore Israel to their rightful place in the world. And this longing had been fueling them for centuries, and now they come to this place where they're eagerly awaiting the arrival of this Messiah. And this really is the expectation in the back of the minds of the people. Not just in this passage, but throughout the Gospels. You can look at several moments in the Gospels and see as, as Jesus is teaching, as he's healing, as he's performing miracles, the crowds are gathering, he's drawing people to himself, and they're wondering, is this guy the Messiah? And at certain points in the Gospels, people actually try to make him king and begin this revolution. And in every single one of those moments, Jesus consistently refuses. And oftentimes he would tell them to not even reveal his true identity yet. But here in this passage, Jesus is putting it on notice. In this passage, for the very first time, Jesus is proclaiming in a grand announcement of who he is and why he came. And he chose to do it very specifically. The text says that they go, the disciples go, and they find a donkey. And again, this seems like a, it's a, just a, a small thing, but what Jesus is actually doing is showing us unmistakably that he is the promised Messiah. And he is going to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah said would come true, that there would be a king riding, a gentle king riding on a donkey. And as he enters Jerusalem, the people begin to see what's happening. And what do they do? They join in on the procession. They see what's happening, and it's unmistakable to them, so they join in on the festivities. They've seen the signs, they've seen the wonders, they've seen him feed 5,000, they've seen him make claims like he is the son of David, that he is the son of God, and now they're seeing him come in on a donkey to fulfill this prophecy. The people have no other response but to sing to him. They have no other response than to sing and proclaim this song to them, a very important song. It's actually a psalm. It's a psalm in uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, that it was a victorious psalm given to a king. It's not something you sing to just a mere human. It's, it's something you sing to someone who's gone onto the battlefield for your behalf, who's overcome your enemies on your behalf. And so they sing these words from Psalm 118. Hosanna, which literally means save us now. This is not just a song you sing to any mere human. This is a song, a worship song, Psalm 118, was designed to sing to the victorious Lord. They're singing of his victory here, and Jesus receives their worship. And what they do is they then take these branches in which uh, other Gospels re uh, refer to them as palm branches, where we get the idea of Palm Sunday. They take these branches, they cut them, and they lay them down as kind of this victory ritual you would give to a, a returning king from battle. And then they do this kind of weird thing, right? The text says they take off their outer garments and begin to lay them down on the ground so that Jesus would then come and proceed over them. 
Now, when you read that in the passage, when I read that, I was thinking, this is kind of weird, right? Like, why are they taking their outer garments off and laying them down on the ground? This seems like kind of an interesting fact that Matthew would include here. Why is he including this? Well, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 9, you see why he's including this. In 2 Kings chapter 9, in Israel, there, in those days, there was this evil and really this illegitimate king. And, and this king, Jehoram, was, was not the king that the people needed. He was a worthless king. And so what does Elijah the prophet do? Well, Elijah then sets up this kind of sort of ad hoc, this, this kind of impromptu enthronement, and he appoints another king, King Jehu. And they didn't have all the bells and whistles and the pretty palaces to do the enthronement ceremony, as you would see in the movies and so they literally just go to the middle of the field, and what they do to kind of have this ad hoc, this kind of impromptu uh, enthronement ceremony for Jehu is they lay their garments down in the middle of the field, and he proceeded over them. Do you know why Matthew's including this? Because it's a sign for the people. It's a sign that they see that there's an illegitimate king reigning right now, King Caesar. He is not the king that they wanted. He is not the king they expected. And they're laying down their garments to show that the true king has come. They're having this kind of makeshift enthronement ritual right here on Palm Sunday for Jesus. And Jesus proceeds. It seems at this moment for the people that the hope of Israel has come, the one who might actually overthrow the Romans. All the, the wrongs that they've endured in their history can be made right. The Messiah is coming. Now, as we continue throughout Holy Week, we'll, we'll see that there were some doubts and questions that begin to creep into the minds of the people. And perhaps even here they had doubts and questions, right? Perhaps even here at this moment they're thinking, how, Jesus, are you going to march in on a donkey with no army to overthrow the Romans? Well, maybe he's got an army coming tomorrow. Maybe when we wake up tomorrow, things will change. And they go the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and there's no army that has flooded into Jerusalem. Nothing has changed. Jesus is still riding in on a donkey. You see, in this moment we see the beginnings, the stirrings of the people here at the end of this passage and eventually those stirrings would reveal that he's not the king that they wanted. Because shortly after this, they ended up yelling, crucify him, not Hosanna. He's not the king they wanted. They wanted the king who would come in on a war horse and show them his power. And instead, Jesus comes on a donkey. A donkey is supposed to come in the, the rear of the battalion, not the beginning. A donkey is fat, it's slow, it doesn't maneuver well. It's not majestic, right? It's not something you would lead the, the attack. You would come in the rear and just, just pick up the soldiers' uh, materials and stuff and carry that. This is not the way you would come in power. And so they look at Jesus here, and in this moment they're saying, Hosanna, but later they would say, crucify him. Which brings to our attention today, how in such a short period of time can they go to believing that he is the one who will save them now to then wanting him crucified? Well, it's a reminder for us this morning that we all have a king in our life. It's a reminder for us that there's all, all of us are, are struggling with this. There's a king in our life, and that king dictates how we respond in circumstances, particularly circumstances that don't go as we expected. And you know what's typically sitting on the, the throne for that kingdom? It's our pride. Is that not what these people were struggling with here? You see, the people, the crowds, they ex experienced Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but they could not imagine how God could save them outside of how they anticipated it happening. They could not imagine how Jesus could save them out of their own way of thinking, which is pretty much the essence of pride, right? It's thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It's puffing ourselves up higher to a place than is truly real of us. It's putting more weight on who we are than what belongs to us. 
And here in this passage, that's precisely what's happening. The people are coming, and, and they're proclaiming this, this Messiah has come. Save us now, but he's not the one they expected. And in their own pride, they turn to want to crucify him. And this should resonate with us because it's most truest of us spiritually. Deep down in our hearts, the thing that gets in the way of God is our pride. It's saying that I know better. I'm more qualified to run my life. And ultimately what pride does is it flips the natural order of things in our lives. We, the created thing, take the place of God in our lives. As French painter Henry Russo once said, God created man in his own image, and man being a gentleman returned the favor. We now sit on top of God, casting judgment on him, making us the God that we ought to worship. It's precisely what pride does. It is in our sin what separates us from God. It's the anthem that says, my will be done rather than his will be done. It's the type of thing that can lead us from saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us to crucify him. And if we're letting Jesus be king of our lives, if the people truly believe that he was the king that was coming, then even in the moments when they did not understand or could not see or anticipate the outcome, the idea here would be that they would put their trust in him, their hope in him alone, that they would know that even if they don't see how things are going in their lives, even if it's not happening the way that they expect it to, that they can still trust him. They can still receive his love for them. But of course, just like the people in this, this story, when we're in our pride, we end up saying, no, I want the power. I want to have the control of my life. I, I want to, to, to see that God acts particularly in the way that I want him to act, not in the way that he does. And instead, it quickly turns us from worshiping and serving him to yelling, crucify him. You see, the test for us today is who's the real king in our life is simply this. When difficult moments come, and this is a difficult moment for the people to receive, when difficult moments come in our lives, when things don't quite add up, when we don't understand what's happening, when God doesn't give us what we truly wanted, when our hopes don't unfold the way we imagined, what then do we do? How then do we respond? Do we still cry out, Hosanna, save us? Are we still able to say, we trust you? Are we still able to worship him? Are we still able to have a peace, a sense of peace with him? Or do we instead give over to angst and anxiety and anger and fear? Do we say, your will be done? Or like the crowds here, turn on him later and say, no, my will be done. This is the revealing of the true king in our lives because in the, the day, they don't want Jesus to be their true king. At the end of the day, uh, they did not expect him to be this type of king. It was not the king that they wanted. Which brings us to a pretty big dilemma in this passage. Because Jesus, the way he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he does it in such a way to proclaim that he is the true king. In other words, as Jesus comes in, he is challenging every other king in this world. Which means in this moment, he's challenging anyone, including us, who might sit proudly on our own thrones. And that's a dilemma for us, right? which reminds us of our second point of application here. It says there is no neutrality with Jesus. There's a lot of things we can be neutral with in life, but Jesus is not one of them. There is no room created for neutrality with him. In this moment, on Palm Sunday, he's actually creating a very intentional scenario for us, that the people are either going to have to choose to reject him or follow him. They're actually going to have to make that choice. Why? Because as he comes in on this donkey, he's proclaiming that he is their Messiah. He is their king. He is their God. 
And the Romans are not going to put up with this, especially as Passover is happening and, and millions of people are coming into the city and there's this intense emotional following of Jesus. And he's creating a scenario, a scenario here as he walks in that either you're going to have to kill me, which is ultimately what they do, or trust me. He's not allowing any of us to have neutrality with him. Either we go all the way with him or we crush him. You see, he has forever created this scenario, not just for first century Israel, but for us as well. Why? Because he claims to be our God. And in the text and in the, the Bible as a whole, he reveals time and time again to us that we are in need of him. That we are in need of him and he is our only hope. He is the only one we can cry, Hosanna, save us. He claims to be our God. And look, let's just take Jesus out of the picture for a moment. We're never going to be neutral about someone who claims to be our God, right? If someone claims to be your God, you're either going to serve them and worship them, or you're going to put them in a straitjacket because they're crazy, right? There's no neutrality there. And the same is true of Jesus. We can't be neutral with him. We either crown him or we kill him, and that's why they killed him. It was a logical conclusion for them. Either we have to submit to the fact that he is Messiah, he is the true king, or if he's not the king we want, we have to crush him. Either he goes or we go. Now, how do we fix this problem then? Where's the solution in the dilemma? Well, I think this text reminds us on Palm Sunday that it starts with us realizing that Jesus may not be the king that we always want, but he is precisely the king that we need. And he is absolutely the king that we need. At the end of this passage, the people of Jerusalem, there's a stirring, there's energy in the city. They're proclaiming, who is this? They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Perhaps they're still questioning that he's not the king that they wanted. He doesn't look like the king that they wanted. He's not as strong, as powerful as they would see a king coming in in triumph into a city. Certainly not the way that I would come into a city if I was coming into victory. He comes humble on a donkey. And perhaps it poses the question, well, how is this a good thing? How is it a good thing that Jesus is coming in, really almost in a sign of weakness on a donkey? And in fact, there's, this is a question that a lot of philosophers have, have debated and, and actually ridiculed Jesus for this. They've said he's, he's coming in in weakness. As, as one uh, philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche, actually says here about Jesus, he decided to side with the poor and the weak because he himself is weak. He says that Jesus decided to side with underlings because he had no other choice. He is one himself. You see, it's quite confusing, honestly, and there's some sympathy for those who, those who come to this conclusion because as he's coming in, he's coming to be the victorious ones. The crowds are looking and saying, we don't see him coming in at power. He's coming in weak on a donkey, and they're singing this victorious song that they would sing to a king. Psalm 118, they begin the week singing, Hosanna, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, the one who will save us. They're singing the victorious portions of that psalm because they believe he's coming in power and strength to save them. But later in Holy Week, guess what? Psalm 118 is going to come back up again. And Jesus is going to sing another portion of that song. He's going to sing about the cornerstone being rejected. In essence, as the people chant and see Jesus coming in, they're proclaiming the victorious portions of this psalm to remind them that he is coming in strength and power, but Jesus later will sing a victorious song to a different tune, one of rejection and weakness. You see, he doesn't come the way we would expect, but he comes in the way that we need him to come. He comes in the only way that he can truly be the king that we need. He comes in a way that shows and puts on his, his, the power of, of who he is on display in a way that is otherworldly. 
in a way that doesn't make sense to the way we view power and strength in this world. It's a paradoxical reality of how Jesus comes in in a, in a sign that's weak and humble to bring about victory and triumph. And the way we see this in Jesus is actually what we sung about earlier today, that he is both the lion and the lamb. You see, on Palm Sunday, he is proclaiming this truth to us, that the way he's going to display his power is going to be so different from any way we would ever see it displayed in this world. And that's because in the person of Jesus, we both have the lion and the lamb, and perhaps this is the best way we can see how Jesus uses his power in humility displayed on the cross. In John, Revelation chapter 5, John says this. He says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We see the power here of the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered victory. But then later, the same person, the same being, he addresses and says, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John is seeing Jesus in this glorified state. He sees in the one person of Jesus both the lion and the lamb. He sees the lion of strength, nobility, and power, and in the same person, a lamb who was slain. And Jesus, as he rides in on a donkey, he is the lion. He is divine king. He has full authority and power. He commands respect that no other leader or king could ever command. But at the same time, he is also a lamb who carries with him deadly mortal wounds, who's meek and vulnerable. There's really no one like this. There's no one who uses their power like this, someone who is infinitely high and majestic, as we saw last week in the Transfiguration, when people behold the the glory of Christ, it's overwhelming. But at the same time, he is also infinitely low in humility and meekness. He puts on our humanity. He enters into, he submerges himself into the the waters of baptism. He makes himself poorer than the poor, lower than the angels. You see, Jesus does not come in on a donkey humble because he can't come in in power, as Nietzsche and others wrongly conclude. He comes like this to show us that he is giving up his power for us. He comes to show us how he might display true power. Because true power is always a servant of love. True power brings others into the fold of God, and this is precisely what Jesus is coming. He's not coming in power and strength that would sweep us away in judgment and wrath, but he's coming weak, lowly, humble, and approachable for us. The entrance here at Palm Sunday is just the beginning. It's just the glimpse of his humility. And as he comes into battle on this Easter week to do battle with our greatest enemy, Jesus is marching in to face our greatest enemy, and he's coming in a way that is leading to death. He's not riding in on a war horse of power and of strength. He's coming in a donkey more like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as he is riding in, he is coming in to defeat our greatest enemy. He is coming in to defeat the pride and sin that easily separates us and entangles us in life that calls us to deserve his judgment, and yet he's coming to die in our place. He's coming to save us, not through brute strength, but by grace. And if we're saved through strength, if we're saved through force, if we're saved through power, then what does that do for us? What makes us then want to operate and have to operate in strength and power each and every day of our lives, which means that there are certain days where we're gonna feel strong in our faith. We're gonna feel like we have the power to live this life. 
We're going to feel good about the fact that we're living up to standards. We're not going to be very humble, though, are we? Because we think we've deserved it. But the same way, if we feel like we've been saved through brute force and strength, and we live in strength, in our own strength, then when we fail, we're going to feel humble, but we're going to feel no level of confidence in God's love for us. Because we realize that we cannot live up to the standard. And how does that affect our daily lives? Well, when someone wrongs us and if we're operating out of strength like that, if we believe that our life is built around strength and power as the world sees it, then when someone wrongs us, we, we can't forgive them. We don't have the, the capacity to forgive. We hold grudges and we're bitter towards them because we know that to forgive them would actually show a sign of weakness under them. They have not lived up to our standards of strength, therefore we can't forgive them. And when something bad happens to us in life and we feel like we're living in our own strength and we're living in our own power, then guess who we blame? We blame God. Because we believe that, no, we deserve something better than what God has given us. And if we're operating our own strength and power and we mess up in life, then we feel like a failure. We feel like there's no way we could ever be received by God. But when we see that God has come as this gentle king to save us through weakness, through a sign of weakness of dying on the cross where we're saved by the gentle king, then we too can then become gentle kings. We too then can operate in such a way that says, you know what, when I am weak, I can recognize I am a sinner. I do fall short. I don't deserve a good life. But in the same breath, we can trust that God, because he came in weakness for us and died in our place, that he loves us immensely in those moments. He is not leaving our side in those moments. That he freely welcomes us in those moments. That he accepts us in those moments. That we can know that even in the moments when we feel like we don't understand what's happening to us, we can know that God's not punishing us because that would go against his love for us. In those moments, we can trust that he is doing something good even when we can't see it. There is no one like him. There is no one like him who his weakness actually leads to strength for us, whose weakness actually leads to life for us, who leads to true power for us. There's no greater safety than to be with this king. There's no greater security than to know this king, this friend, this savior. So as we come to our time of communion, how to respond to Jesus how to respond to him in this passage. I think this passage actually gives us a warning here. You see, the crowds, they loved and adored Jesus on Palm Sunday. They sang to him, but they were the same crowds that would eventually want him crucified. You see, they loved and adored Jesus for what he could bring, for what he could do, for what he could provide, for what he could perform, but they did not adore him for him. Jesus was just a servant of their expectations. Yeah, they were amazed by Jesus, but they didn't know his excellencies. They didn't ponder how he could be their Messiah, their king. You see, crowds throughout the Gospels were amazed by Jesus, but they rarely understood and, and rarely knew him. There's a warning here in this passage of just being merely amazed by Jesus. The crowds were infatuated by him. There's a lot of hype around him, but there's a problem with that. Because that level of hype had a dangerous outcome. This mob that was hyped, this mob that was amazed by Jesus, when the emotional infatuation wore off, they wanted him crucified. You see, merely being amazed today, infatuated, is dangerous because our hearts can change on a dime. 
We, like the people here, we can praise Jesus in one moment, and the next day we can easily turn on him. We need something deeper, something better. Amazement should lead us to pondering and reflecting on what he's done for us, to trust him as our Messiah today, to let the events of Easter week settle in our hearts, that we look at his life and his death and his resurrection, and we ponder what he has accomplished for us. And even the moments when we feel like Jesus is not the king we want, we can trust that he is the king that we need. And the way we do that is reminding ourselves that he is the only one who is willing to come in weakness and humility to do what he could only do to bring us into his family to do what we can never do in our own pride, to put on full display a record of trustworthiness and unfailing love for us. See, him riding in on a donkey reminds us today that we can freely step off the throne of our lives because we were never qualified for that role in the first place. We can allow him to be king. So as we come into this Passion Week, this Holy Week, we could be amazed by Jesus. We need to be in wonder and awe of what he has done for us. But let's not allow that amazement just to be infatuation. Let's allow that amazement to, to lead us to see what he has done for us, that when Good Friday comes around, we're not yelling crucify him, except we're worshiping him in awe and wonder of what he has done for us. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.